evening to you. Psalm 108 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently looking at the, studying the Psalms. If you're with us tonight as we're turning there and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And, and then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, today. As the old saying goes, you show me uh, a Bible that is worn out and I'll show you a Christian who isn't. And there's a lot of truth to that. And so we want everyone to have a Bible. Now Psalm 108 is a psalm of praise to the Lord for a coming uh, deliverance or for a future deliverance or victory. And we can praise the Lord not only when God gives us victory in our life in a particular situation where we look back and it's past tense, but God's promises are so sure to us as Christians that we can praise Him ahead of time for his promises and the fact that they're going to be fulfilled in our life. And that's what David does here. In this psalm, somehow the nation of Israel has experienced a defeat, a military defeat uh, of an enemy of, of theirs at this time. The defeat is a shock to David and to the children of Israel. We don't have any other details than that, really, this psalm and the historical Record, And so this has happened. They're in need of deliverance related to this setback that they've had. And so this is behind uh, the psalm. Oh, God, my heart is steadfast. So they've had this setback, but it hasn't moved him away from God. It causes him to draw closer to the Lord. And that's always a spiritually mature way to handle difficulties in our life or if some kind of a spiritual defeat occurs in our lives. We know that it isn't the fault of God in any way that that happens, but not to use that, allow that to discourage us or the devil come in and say, how could that defeat happen to you, drive us further away from God? But to use those things as an opportunity to say, no, I'm going to double down and draw even closer to the Lord. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. And so here he is. This setback has occurred, but he begins to, begins to praise the Lord once again for the victory that he knows uh, is coming in his future. He says, Awake, lute and harp. And of course, David was a very skilled musician and worship leader. And so he's calling himself to take down an instrument and lift up these words to the Lord with instrumental accompaniment. I will awaken the dawn. And so he's going to begin his day with the worship of the Lord and praise of the Lord. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. And then he gives the reasons why, for your mercy is great above the heavens. Do you believe that about your life tonight? That God's mercy toward you and toward me is great above the heavens. That's how much he has. It's funny how different our personalities can be. Some people, they just seem to be born with that confidence that God's got these mountains of mercy. And then there's other of us who think that he gives it out by the thimbleful. And it's a long, 
hard work of the Lord, but He's up to it to teach us. I mean, just failure by failure, trial by trial, that He's got a lot of mercy and that He's very lavish with His mercy. David said, For your mercy is great above the heavens and your truth reaches to the clouds. Well, that's a wonderful duo to praise the Lord for, for His mercy and then also for His truth. And then he prays to the Lord for deliverance specifically. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, your glory above the earth, that your beloved, he speaks of himself, may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. Isn't that something? Well, they've suffered this defeat, this potential to go into some kind of condemnation. What have I done, God? What is it? Why do you hate me? What have I done in the doghouse and all? And yet David looks and says that your beloved speaking of himself may be delivered. Again, it's a wonderful thing for us to think about as a child of God, to realize we are beloved by God. And he's not conditional about that, about his love. He's not like the dad or the mom or the authority figure or the mentor or the coach or whoever it is that the first time you make a mistake, he shuts off the love and now you can't be sure that it's there. Here's David in this place. It's just a beautiful line, confident in the fact that he is beloved of God. Now, he, was, he had that confidence under the old covenant. How much more under the new covenant established in the blood of Christ. The love of God demonstrated at Calvary and the death of the Son of God for the forgiveness of our sins. Save with your right hand and hear me. And then he begins to reflect on God's sovereignty, His almightiness and His power. So we ask God to do these great things in our life. We're asking God for a great deliverance. But sometimes if we don't take a little time to think about how big God is and how powerful He is, then it isn't true in the universe and it isn't true in reality. But it can be a lie in our own mind to think that this situation is too big to be delivered from. This situation that I've gotten myself into now or the pickle that I'm in is bigger than God's ability to take care of it. Sometimes we can feel that way in a situation. And so he stops and he remembers that God is sovereign. Another way of putting that is that God is almighty. Almighty is almighty. That's almighty. It's almighty. How much mighty is that? It's almighty. He's got all might. Nothing's impossible for him. And David takes a moment to reflect upon that. God has spoken in his holiness I will rejoice, and speaking of the Lord speaking, I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim also is the helmet for my head, Judah is my lawgiver. Then in verse 9 he begins to speak about some of the um, continual enemies of Israel as a people. Moab, God says, is my wash pot. That's not very flattering. So he has absolute authority over Moab. 
This is Moab. David's probably, here's Moab and the danger that Moab is to the children of Israel or at that time in, in their history and all. And God says, I can wash the dishes with him. He's just a wash pot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe and over Philistia I will triumph. Who will bring me into the strong city and who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off and you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble for the help of man is useless. Do you believe that more than you've ever believed that in your life? (laughs) The help of man is useless. You say, no, I don't believe that yet. All right, you're under 50. You get above 50 and you look and you say, the, the, these people that are running everything in this world, they're no smarter, no dumber than you, no more what. It's, it, it's, it's worse than you thought. When you're younger, you think they're smarter. They're not smarter. And the body starts to fall apart. That's a whole other story. We didn't come tonight to be depressed, did we? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble. For the help of man is useless through God. Oh, there's an alternative. We will do valiantly. Now, that will birth faith in our heart to see my situation in the light of the strength and the love of God. For it is He who shall tread down all of our enemies. And so David, so confident of this coming victory. We don't have to wait until after we see God accomplish the victory and any need in our life to praise Him. We can praise Him ahead of time because His promises are that sure. In verse, uh, I mean, Psalm 109, we have one of the strongest uh, psalms of its type in the whole 150 psalms of the book. And it's a cry for justice, again, on the part of David. And it's a cry by David for God to punish the wicked. We don't know specifically what circumstance in David's life that he is writing this out of. We know that David, uh, we have a, a very, very nice record of David's life in the Bible, historical record that's a part of the Scriptures. And uh, we know that he had a lot of enemies, A lot of people that sought to destroy him. Ahithophel did. His own son Absalom did. Uh, Doeg, the Edomite, uh, was an enemy of his. Shimei was another enemy of his who scorned him and blasphemed him in in the midst of that uh, rebellion by Absalom against David. And so we don't know who it is. There were a lot of possibilities. We just know that the psalm came out of uh, that kind of a circumstance. And we know that what David was in the middle of was some kind of a verbal attack. He said, do not keep silent, O God, of my praise. He's in a situation, and we'll see it in just the next couple of verses here, where the attack that is being made upon him verbally is, is so hurtful to his heart and so painful to him that uh, he turns to God and he cries out to the Lord, says, don't keep silent, I need to hear from you. And isn't that, we need to hear from God all of the time, but isn't 
Aren't those circumstances in life the time where we really need to hear from God? Where someone or some group of people is just trashing our name, trashing our reputation in some kind of a way, and we're powerless to stop it, and it's just a mess, and the whole thing is going on and all, and you say, what can I do? The one thing that I need is I've got to hear from you, God. They're saying all of these things about me. They feel all of these things about me. And I need to know, God, in the middle of all of this, what do you think of me? What's on your heart and your mind as you look at my life and as you look at the situation? Because if we know that we're right with God, then we can endure any kind of viciousness that the world can mete out against us and our heart and our reputation. Have you noticed that the world is moving in a very bad direction in this way? What comes out of people's mouths? There's the lack of politeness. People that are my age that I run into, not in this church, and I'm not talking about the kingdom of God, you say, how can that come out of your mouth at this age? How can you say things that are that destructive and that harmful and they come out of your wicked heart like a flood? But the cultures become so debased and such a lack of respect and restraint and self-discipline and all of these things, that this kind of thing is just getting worse and worse. I'll tell you, shame on me, but shame on you too if we believe anything that is said about anyone through the media or these junky TV shows that just exist to slander people's reputation, to lift them up in the hopes of then having the news story of destroying them the very moment they slip up. This whole machine that we're in the middle of is just a terrible, terrible thing. And when we refuse to be a part of it, as a Christian. It's so pervasive, it's so big that when we look at it and we say to somebody, I won't go there. You don't know that that's true about that situation. How do you know that that's true? Or even if we don't go that far and we just walk away from the conversation and say, I don't believe that about it. That makes us so different in the debasement of the world that we're in right now. But this is the kind of thing that's becoming more and more common. And for David, of course, it's hard because it's so common related to leaders. You say, oh, I knew the psalm would become self-serving for you somewhere. No, that's not my purpose. But leaders are in a place of especially being attacked in this way especially as David. David was a spiritual leader, but he was a political leader as well. And you're not going to please everyone with your decisions. And those is a leader in that way. And so he had his enemies. And you know the hardest thing, as we'll see in just a moment, there's so much we'll see in just a moment in the psalm. The hardest thing for David was not what was being spoken about him. 
but was that so many people believed it. That's the thing that kills you. In all areas of life, that's the thing that kills pastors, drives them out of the ministry the fourth time, the fifth time, the sixth time, the seventh time, the eighth time that it happens. It isn't the person that's doing it. You usually know the circumstances. You know what's happening there. The thing that kills you is that not one in a hundred among God's people will ever come to you for the other side of the story. Though the Bible says that we never know the full story until we've heard both sides of a story. And whenever we listen to this about anyone, but especially about people in leadership, and you don't have to be a person in leadership, you just have to be someone who's leading in life as a Christian. You're not the tail, you're the head, you're not the follower, you're leading in life. That's how we ought to live as Christians, where you're going to become vulnerable to this, this kind of a thing. And, and, and so the, the pain and the, and the hurt of, of the circumstance. And so this kind of thing happens. doesn't look like it's going to get better anytime soon. But as long as we know that what God thinks of us and God thinks well of us, then we can be okay. But I want to leave that exhortation upon our heart. You and I don't know anything about a situation until we've heard both sides. There are so many things. You say, how do you know? I know from personal experience. I know from failure in this regard. Where someone comes and says this and this and this and given then who they are and the thing just seems to add up and of course there can't be another explanation. You can't have an explanation from anyone that can change what this looks like and then you believe it for weeks or months or years about another person. And then some way in God's providence, He brings the other side of the story to your attention, and you go, I can't believe what I believed about them for so long that was untrue. God help us. And so he says, Do not keep silent, O God, of my praise. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. People's, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. And people's hearts are getting more and more wicked. The sewage that's going into people's hearts and minds, it's just going to be sewage coming out of their mouth. You can't, what's in our hearts is going to come out of our mouth. So the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened up against me. And so one thing is terrible that their mouth has opened up and they're spewing out this garbage. And then what makes it worse that it's being directed toward me? That's the other thing that's interesting too. Sometimes you listen maybe to something on the radio or you listen to this or some you know gossip thing on the television or somebody gossiping over here and and sometimes the, the way that they'll lambast a person or or make fun of them or whatever it can even be funny in a car, very carnal way it can be funny but you know when it isn't funny anymore 
is when that same person then turns and you become the target of it. And so now they have opened up against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. How many of you know that it hurts to be lied about by a wicked person? We know. And they have surrounded me with the words of hatred. And they have fought against me without a cause. So they're lying against him and he's given them no reason. for there, There's no basis for the lies. He says, and they fought against me without a cause. I've given them no reason to hate me. I've given them no reason to slander me and to become the target of their slander. And, and everything that they're saying against me is a lie. And, of course, the whole volume of the book speech of Christ and, of course, Concerning him, we think about the blasphemy and we think about the injurious speech that was, uh, and the lies that were spoken against him, even while he hang, hung upon the cross that was directed toward him, all without a cause. The human heart, what a terrible thing it is outside of the control of the Holy Spirit. He said, and worst of all, in return for my love, they are my accusers. But I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. So David says, here's the most painful thing about it, is that these are people who have known nothing but love from me, and now here they've turned on me in this way. Think about how painful that is. This is quite a portrait of what it is that he's, he's laying out here. And in terms of the circumstance that he was in the middle of. But I want you to notice that last sentence, or part of the sentence in verse 4, in response to all of it, he said, but I give myself to prayer. And it's important to recognize that that's what he did. It wasn't, oh, yeah, well, I'll tell you, you think you can say a few things. Well, I got a, you think you, I know a few things about that guy. And then here we are, we're repaying evil for evil, and the kingdom of God isn't being seen through our lives. So what does he do? He takes this terrible thing that's happening to him, and he takes it to the Lord in prayer. It's very wise. Say much to God and say little to man when we find ourselves in this kind of a situation. I have rarely regretted something I didn't say. Occasionally, I've regretted not speaking up, but that's not the, the norm. I have regretted many things that I have allowed to slip out of my mouth, and always they've slipped out of my mouth before I've taken the issue to God in prayer. I talked to somebody else about it before I talked about the Lord. And so it's always best to talk to God before talking to people, to tell him about it, tell him all about it. And that's exactly what David is doing here. And then in verse 6, David prays to God that he would, for judgment against uh, the man who seems to be the ringleader of this band that is leading this campaign against him. And, and he asked the Lord to judge him. In essence, he says to the Lord, uh, give, him, give this man a taste of his own medicine. And remember, David is under the old covenant, which was eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
And so that's how he's operating here in this psalm. And so David begins this long list of curses. Some of you will love it. You'll think, wow, why didn't I think of that? That's fabulous. My flesh bears witness to this section of Scripture. You'll underline it and say, I'm going to create a new book of the Bible, First Fleshalonians. So he lays out all of these curses that spell out kind of what he would like God to do in bringing judgment upon this ringleader. The sentiment is very, very harsh, but as we're going to see later in the psalm in verses 15 and 16, uh, that uh, that the persecution that this man was meeting out wasn't just against David, but a much larger group of people. And so here David begins his prayer, Lord, give this man a taste of his own medicine. Set a wicked man over him. He's been a wicked man over so many. Let him understand. Put a wicked man over him. That's one of the ways God cures us of things, doesn't it? (laughs) Gives us exactly what we've been doing to others. And we go, oh, no, I didn't realize, or I did realize, but... Now I'm humbled. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. And when he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Now that's interesting in verse 8 because Peter quotes that when they're in the upper room following the death of Judas and, they, and Peter decides before he's baptized with the Holy Spirit that he's going to form a committee now to appoint uh, the apostle that's going to take Judas's place. And so they cast lots and all of these different things. God's not into casting lots in the New Testament. He's into prayer and the leading of the Holy Spirit. But Peter uh, quoted this particular verse here uh, by the Holy Spirit. And then you say, well, boy, that's an interesting verse. And why would that come to his remembrance? Well, we remember that when he quotes this, and let another take his office, that he's quoting now from Psalm 109, the single greatest psalm, speaking about the betrayal of the innocent by the wicked. And, of course, the single greatest act of betrayal in human history probably was Judas's betrayal of Jesus after having been his disciple for three and a half years. So Peter knew exactly uh, where Judas and his kind kind of fit in, uh, in terms of a scripture describing him. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow calling for his death. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has. Let strangers plunder his labor, take away all of his wealth. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any, um, nor let there be any favor. To his fatherless children, let his posterity be cut off. And in the generations following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered no more. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. And so he speaks concerning this man's family. And apparently David seems to recognize that the parents bore some responsibility significant responsibility for this man becoming the wicked man uh, that he had become. And if our children grow up to be ungodly and wicked, 
It should always be in spite of our heroic efforts as children to train them in another way. But sometimes it doesn't work out the way that we desired or that God desired, but as long as they're alive, God is at work in their life and there's still hope. And so we don't want to nurture wickedness in children's, our children's lives. We don't want to nurture deceitfulness in them. And apparently it had been in this man's life. And so he goes on and speaks in verse 15, And let them be continually before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. And now he gives the reason, not just because of what he did to David, because he did not remember to show mercy, but he persecuted the poor and needy man. That's the worst kind of human being that looks and says, There's a poor man or woman. There's a needy man or woman, and I am going to take advantage of their poverty. There are degrees of judgment in the eternal lake of fire, and I think this is going to be the reservation, unless the person repents, one of the hottest places this kind of people go. These sex slaves... They go to these nations and take these girls, 11, 12 years old and up, give them these promises, take them from their families and from their villages and then ship them off to who knows where the capitals of the cities of the world and into individual homes of wealthy people where they'll be sexually abused for years and years and years and they take advantage of them because of the family's need for money. The terrible, terrible human beings. And this was a terrible human being. Persecuting the poor and the needy man. That's the, that's the person that's powerless in the culture. We never want to take advantage of someone because they're poor or because we have an advantage over them that we can uh, use to get the better deal and to, and to take what little they have from them. Not just in terms of what they possess, but in terms of their strength and their youth and their vitality, that he might even slay the broken in heart. He was taking advantage of the broken heart. And as he loved cursing, he loved to curse people, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing, as as with his garment, he wore cursing, probably profanity, but also pronouncing curses upon people, just blaspheming them and, and, and calling bad will upon them. He said, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let him partake of it deeply and let it be to him like the garment which covers him and for a belt which he girds, uh, himself, with which he girds himself continually. In other words, no escape. And let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. And so David is interesting here. He goes to the, to the Lord. He pours this all out in prayer. He's giving uh, suggestions to the Lord. Uh, related to what he might do, but he does not take this into his own hands and to do these things. God said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord.
And the reason that God does not allow us to take vengeance for ourselves upon other people is because there's the tendency when we find ourselves in this kind of place to maybe overplay it and go too far, spoil our Christian witness, and then maybe even land ourselves in prison as a result of it. I mean, that's the way the flesh can operate. And so God says, you keep vengeance where it's safe. I won't do what is too little in your situation. I won't do what is too much for your situation. Only I can do what is perfectly right because only he can see it as clearly as he sees it. So David does this good thing. He lifts all of this up to the Lord in prayer. And as someone has said, the best way to get rid of an enemy is to leave him with the Lord. I think that sometimes we think when the Lord says in his word, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And we go, That's why I learned karate. I don't even know what karate is. I learned it so I can take vengeance in this thing. I'm le- and I'm leaving it with God. And he's such a big Pillsbury doughboy. He's such a pushover and all. He'll never take vengeance. God says, vengeance is mine. And we always forget the next bit, part of it. He says, I will repay. When we pray and we ask the Lord in this way or in gentler terms in the New Testament to take care of a situation. We can leave it with Him and He will take care of it. We may not see how He takes care of it, but He will take care of it. And He says, but you, O God the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake. And so David's in need of mercy. And so he says, Lord, I need you to overrule all of this because your mercy is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy and my heart is wounded within me. It's a terrible wound. And I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. When you see your shadow getting long, what does it mean? It's late in the day. <laughs> he says, my, I'm at my end here. I'm shaken off like a locust. He says, death, if, I, death is as close as just flicking me off like a locust off of a robe. My knees are weak through fasting and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I'm just, I'm weak and because of all of this. And I also have become a reproach to them when they shake their They look at me, they shake their heads. And so he says, on top of this is all the disrespect that they show toward him. Just like they did at Jesus. Remember, Jesus is on the cross. And those religious leaders were shaking their heads related to him. Think about that. Think about how small a human being is. And the height of arrogance that a human being is capable of to look at the Son of God on a cross and then add further wounds to his physical wounds, to wound his heart and his mind by disrespecting him, by shaking your head at him. They did it to David and they they did it to Jesus. 
Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to your mercy that they may know that this is your hand, that, Lord, you have done it. And so he says, Lord, I need you to take care of me in this situation. I need you to deliver me from this situation. But do it in a way that people recognize that you did it. So David isn't just looking to escape the difficulty of the situation. He wants God to be glorified. And so, God, you do it in a way that allows the world to say, that's a God thing. That was amazing. Let them curse, but you bless. We can live with that, can't we? When they arise, let them be ashamed. But let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. And so he says, Lord, work in this situation in a way that leaves my accusers publicly shamed and ashamed for how they have treated me as your son. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude. So again, we don't have to wait for deliverance to praise the Lord. God will take care of it. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. And so when we find ourselves in that kind of a place and we're being ill-treated or being slandered in that kind of a way, we can be confident that the Lord is standing at our side. And who better than Jesus understands what a person is going through when this kind of thing is going on? And it's said of Jesus in a great prophetic psalm, uh, prophetic section of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. This says in verse 3, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. You say, who can understand? Who can I bring this to in prayer that could understand and stand by me? And no one understands the way that the Lord understands. And so there are situations that happen in our life. I think it's one of the lessons of the psalm that the ear of God is the only ear that can properly hear and translate our prayers because the hurt is so great, not just slander, but many other kinds of things. And as we pour out our heart to the Lord and all the different various hardships in life to know that he is always a safe ear to speak to. The interesting thing about the Lord is when we pray to the Lord, even as we would pray a prayer that's very much an Old Testament prayer in Psalm 109, that we are able to take a... That, to know that God is able to take a prayer like this and then properly translate it or properly understand it and then answer it in his own way. So was the prayer about Ahithophel? Was it about Absalom? Was it about Shimei? Was it about Doeg, the Edomite? We don't know. But we know that in each of those situations, God had the final say in taking care of what those men attempted to do to David, and he protected David. God knows how to translate our prayers. When we pray a prayer to the Lord in Jesus' name, we are asking the Lord to answer our prayer as our prayer is consistent with the nature and the character of Jesus. 
You know, one of the things that's nice about praying in Jesus' name is that we don't have to worry that our prayers aren't perfect. We don't have to overthink our prayers. We're just asking Him, uh, we're, we're asking the Lord to run our prayers through the sieve or through the grid of Jesus' heart and His character and then answer whatever is left of the prayer after he's done that. <laughs> I like that. And that's what the Lord does. The Bible says that we're to pour our heart out to the Lord. God is a safe ear to pour our heart out to. And then we say, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. He's able to take and sift through the whole thing. And what of that prayer is consistent with Christ? Then he says, that's the prayer I understand this to be. And that's the prayer that he then answers. And that's what God does. And God is a very, very safe listener. And God is a discerning listener. And he will always answer our prayers in a way that is consistent with the heart and the character of Christ. And, of course, that's the only answer that we want. Well, we will stop there tonight, just getting through two psalms, and um, take an opportunity to um, enjoy the Lord's Supper this evening.